Welcome to Rising Titans with Andy Weiss, a podcast that hones in on the process of achieving greatness. In each episode, we sit down with a rising titan of industry and learn about their path to success thus far. We always remind our listeners to keep in mind that it's not about the end result, it's about the journey. In today's episode, we sit down with Ben Brash, co-founder and partner at Rucab Brash, a law firm specializing in real estate and construction. Ben's practice provides owner's representative services to development and renovation projects throughout the tri-state area. In addition, Ben serves as a trustee of the Washington Institute of Near East Policy and is a member of its Abramson Young Leaders Program. Welcome, Ben. How are you? I'm good, brother. Thank uh, you for having me. Dude, that's that's great to hear. I'm I'm very glad. Uh, I'm very glad you're you're joining. Uh, you know, it, it was very serendipitous. Like someone someone canceled on me, and we spoke yesterday, and it was just like, make a podcast. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's actually funny. This morning, I thought to myself, you are somehow the fourth straight GW graduate to be on the podcast. I, it really does not surprise me. The <laughs> GW community is extremely well represented in the New York real estate world. We're all yeah. young, hungry, on the come up. And you you keep great companies, so don't oh, surprise wow. me that thank you. That all roads lead back to, <laughs> to the boys from GWs. I, I appreciate it. Although what I will say is that one of them, uh, he just graduated Harvard from law school, so he he's, but and his, his dad I guess is in real estate, so there's some tie there somehow. But uh, and the other one, he works in energy consulting, but it's, it, it is real estate related, so we, there, there's some tie there. But yeah, I mean it, it, it is amazing though when you think about it. There are a lot of schools out there, four in a row, just by, by total, total chance, mind you. Like, it, it, it just hit me, and I, I thought it was, it's, it's kind of a fun Well, if it's not the real estate aspect, there's definitely something in the water when it comes to GW alum in that everyone is, has that entrepreneurial hustle spirit that, that I know you cling to and that you look for, oh. I think, and, and a lot of the guests, for sure. Wow. Um, okay, well, I want to I want to get to that. But I, I, I usually just like to start off the podcast, like, you know, tell everyone listening, like, wh where are you from? Like, how, what, what brought you to GW? Like, how, like, give us give us that like brief bio and, and, and kind of then we'll delve into this entrepreneurial GW spirit. All right, fair enough. Uh, I am a, a great neck New York Long Island guy uh very stereotypical made the journey to gw like many of the <sighs> those before me and and who've come after me uh family uh mother born in romania bucharest father in israel met in queens new york and did that journey of us from queens to long island the the immigrant spirit and going you know me and my my siblings trying to, to keep the tradition going going to these big uh big universities, my sister at Wisco, me at GW, my brother went to Vandy, so that an immigrant wow. spirit that started with uh, the family from out of, out of the ashes of World War II uh, to New York, to Great Neck, uh, and then GW, that's uh, my background from a high level, uh, and you know, GW is where I got into real estate that kicked over some dominoes that, that ended up to my career today family business is also tangentially in the in the game as well and right after GW I worked with the family business my my father typical Israeli engineer has an <laughs> IT telecom business that 
is a subcontractor to a lot of big uh, contractors and developers in the city. That's how I came up in that world, pulling cable for my dad. And after school, we're working for him. I know you'll circle back to stuff. I don't want to take away from you. After school, jumped right back into that. Hurricane Sandy changed up the life plans a little bit, brought me back to the to the real estate grind that I was doing in, in GW. But yeah, that's uh that's huh. where, where the the roots began, Great Neck, New York. Wow. Okay. Well, well, Great Neck. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I think uh, it's something that I talk a lot about in general and and on the podcast, but just how your surroundings really shaped you. And and you said you know your dad is tangential to real estate, but I'm sure you know Great Neck, New York. A lot of people in the real estate world live out in Great Neck, New York. Um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a pretty affluent area, and 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 I I think it's just, I'm you know I'm kind of curious like, at what age did you say to yourself like I want to be in the real estate world like, you know because and I've I've said this many times before like for me growing up I had no idea that real estate was a profession. You know I I'm from Westchester, you know, probably grew up 45 minute drive with no traffic from each other, but like totally different world for me. Like I, I, I didn't have a conception of that. Yeah. I think it wasn't so much the business side of real estate that I got, that got me hooked at first, more so the, the bricks and construction side of it. I think growing up in New York, I was always fascinated with the skyscrapers, infrastructure, trains mm. set, you know, that, and always really jumped into that and like urban planning side of things. And my first, my, on my dad's side, I think that was more on the, the wiring, nitty gritty side. But my first big break was with uh, a gentleman who I think you met, another great net guy, David Amirian, who he gave me an internship while I was at GW oh. doing uh, as a, he would, David was running construction for Zamir Equities at the time. They were building at the when Wall Street was first getting and financial district was having that transformation from only a, a nine to five business district yeah. to a 24 hour residential community. They were one of the first developments in Satai huh. and uh, converted an office building to residential. And that got me hooked. I mean, Dave was work, you know, the right hand man to Asher Zamir, the principal at the time doing that development. And being in real estate there on the construction side of a, it was a, you know, a $200 million project over a hundred uh, apartments, mixed use, like in the financial wow. district, when you get a taste of, of the principal lifestyle and the development lifestyle and high stakes Manhattan high end condo. I think that for me, that taste, I was hooked and, you know, never, that was, that's where I, I really got that's, the itch. That's so cool. great neck. Great Neck was part of it. It was definitely the Great Neck connection that got me to Dave and always, you know, props to Dave and for many reasons for life, I'll owe him for putting me onto the game. Uh, and that was where it all began. Huh? Well, I, it almost sounds like the start of a movie, you know, like, like, a like a Wolf of Wall Street in, in like, the, like the lifestyle, like, like those lifestyle scenes, you know, like just like feeling that, that rush of like, that's like that's a, that's a big project. Like, how, how old were you when you, yeah, when you worked exactly. on that? Yeah, exactly. Well, that was I got that. That was while I was at GW. The summer after the our, my sophomore year, I, I I worked there. Summer again after my junior year, and then like I mentioned after college, though I did not go right back into that. I I it was maybe three years in between. I came and then Dave reached out to me again 
maybe we'll probably get to that. And then it got brought me back to the, back to the real estate world. Huh. And, huh. But you know, Wolf of Wall Street, they go out to those nice lunches, that scene where like, uh, don't, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey, yeah. where he's doing little key bumps. The, that's like the, the, the finance life with the really nice dinners. The way I came up was like, get, there's this deli right by the stock exchange on exchange place, Champs Deli. I was started like having rip off a piece of cardboard, write the coffee and like tuna sandwiches and turkey sandwiches <laughs> order for everybody. That's how I came up in construction on a job site. And then you're that's, coming in those, you know, being sitting in these awesome. meetings with heavy hitters, uh, absorbing everything. But my ticket to the meeting was bringing coffee and, and the sandwiches, not. Not, no, you know, no. Looks like you, 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 you were, you were hustling. Like it's, it's, it's cool. It's cool. Um, well, it's a cool you, industry like that. That you know, the apprentice. It's there's not that many industries I think that are still like that where you you come up with a mentor, apprentice, and learn your ways. Not not so much in a textbook, but by uh, you know on on the job training and by experience. Hmm. You know, it's it's interesting you say that. Because I was speaking with uh, Alex Zafrin, who's, who's my last podcast guest, also a GW alum, uh, gave the commencement speech for the class of, I believe it's 2013, uh, which is pretty cool. But, uh, you know, we were talking about the importance of role models. And he, he left Bloomberg to go to this small energy consulting firm. And he, he wanted to take a little bit of a different path in his career. Uh, but he really was focused on finding someone who he can model himself afterwards, after, you know, and, and even I, I think it, the value of that is similar to for him. You know, he he also worked at Bloomberg and, and they trained him there. And it, it kind of made me think of like there's a lot of value in in the vocational training in the workforce. Right. It's very practical. And I, I went to Northeastern and that's something that they espouse just that's their ethos, right? Like that's Northeastern does a co-op program. You work six months a year and go to, go to school six months a year for three straight years. Um, and, and you, you learn a lot on the job, like you're saying, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what did you study in, like, were you studying real estate or finance in school? And, and like, did it relate to your actual internship, which is like, it seems like it wasn't just like a regular internship, like you were really ingrained in your work. Yeah, I, GW was undergrad business major and the there was no, I, real, GW has a real estate program now. I'm, I've been involved in certain events. The gentleman who runs that, uh, Rob Valero at GW now is amazing, amazing person and a great resource for the school uh -huh. and those students. And I've helped kids come through that program now. And Guys like wow. Brandon Singer, who you had on on your show, and John Butwin, another GW guy, also in the in this New York real estate world, they are very active in that. So GW has a big real estate program now, but then it was more general business studies and just uh, you know, entrepreneurial. Uh, GW pushed entrepreneurial spirit, and there was like little odds and ends like businesses. My friends and I tried starting at the time, and like things that we we tried making money on little hustles here and there but uh there wasn't yeah wasn't anything that gw did to push push towards uh the real estate huh interesting but would you say like would you say that everyone there had some level of, uh, like you, i guess you did say it before like there is an entrepreneurial spirit there which i think is interesting 
when, when you think there's also a very political bent to the school, uh, which my last, my last two podcast guests uh, kind of alluded to, both, both had political affiliations. And, and you, you obviously do have a lot of interest in that as well. And we'll get to that later with your involvement with the Washington Institute. Um, but, you know, what would you say created that environment at GW? Like, is it, is it that, you know, all of the kids who go there, they come from families that are entrepreneurial, like clearly you, you do, right? Like your, your dad, an Israeli immigrant, he, he hustled and he figured out how to make money, right? Like start a business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never really done a ton of reflecting on that. I think a bit one, one element of it is, and I came from, I grew up in Great Neck. I was no, uh, I was exposed to like you, great, you know, wealth in great and growing up in Great Neck. But I think GW exposed me to like another stratosphere. I think of wealth that I didn't know necessarily existed. Huh. But, you know, just there's a lot of uh, of international money over there. There was like when Instagram was first coming out, like one of the first like parody accounts, like Cars of of GW. I think it was like an Instagram account huh. or Twitter handle going around, like like posting those. So I think a big part of it was like myself and probably some of the other kids at GW who don't get me wrong. I, I don't think I, I, we came up privileged lifestyles and had, had plenty of opportunity, but we still saw things at GW of like, wow, I didn't know you can attain that level of uh, kind of success, career, wealth. Like I want to Got be it. able to get my, I, like, if I have the opportunity of sending my kids to GW and getting them a Range Rover to park in front of the library <laughs> blocks, like I'm like, yeah, great. So I oh, think man. seeing a lot of, a lot of my classmates who, who like put me on to things they never know existed, definitely added to it. I think there is something to be said though, the curriculum and the setup at GW did foster that. I mean, mm-hmm. we were learning, they, they were trying to similar thing you said about Northeastern. They were trying to push, you know, practical, skill sets on us and practical case studies and, and ways of looking at things. The politics oh. element though, like, you know, now we live in a, in, in a crazy world where politics and like sound bites from the president right, can dominate the news cycle more so than I think they did then. Like I, politics were a thing. Like GL, uh, George Bush was the president and then Obama won when we were at, in, in school. I remember that being wow. a huge deal, but like it wasn't, <laughs> It, the, the politics conversation like didn't dominate uh, the way I think huh. it can dominate nowadays. Interesting. Interesting. Um, like if we watch John Stewart, right. And like that, and like that was the, the, the satire going with like the, the social, like societal norms of the president that don't exist anymore because <laughs> that, 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 that those still existed then. Like you didn't, like that, we've just, I got you. Well, also, I, you know, Jose, I, I would, I would say my, my thinking would be that to some extent, right. A lot of the mainstream media is left leaning. Right. And so they're, they're not going to make as big a deal with, of, of Obama as they are with, with, uh, with DJT. Although I guess what you're saying is Bush was Bush was there before, and they, they I don't know, I feel like they, they gave him a good t- a good run for his money. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think now you have left wing media talking heads, right, or even John Stewart types who probably 
kick themselves for going for being so uh, not non-objective and biased for George W. Bush or even Romney's campaign because that has put that that has now allowed somebody like Trump to kind of fill the void and everyone to be like, mm. dude, new, fake news because you guys went. You like these guys, George W. Bush and Romney right now, you guys would take in a heartbeat, but you beat them up so much and said their policies, which were probably pretty rational and level headed. You, you, you know, you didn't give them the time of day then. So, you know, you don't have a lot of credibility now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but we, we, we shouldn't get into politics. I feel like no one wants to hear about it. Well, I'm, a, I'm, I was, I'm, a, I'm just, I'm a radical independent. I don't, and I, I am. I respect that because I, 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 I think I, I am I, as well. I, I, I am issue by issue. Right now, I'll tell you in this micro moment of Corona crushing our city, I root for the President Trump all the way. I hope he's successful because I hope we're all successful. I love that. I think that. We're, Amer- we're Americans first before we're anything. So you got to root for the president to succeed no matter wow. when. The same way you'd be pissed if people were rooting for Obama to fail. Dude, I, I, I really respect that view. And, and I, I think that people make a lot of, they, they, they don't, like, I think that's just like a very critical viewpoint, like not, and not critical in a bad way. I mean, like, like it's, it, it, it demonstrates a good level of critical thinking and, and just like assessing like, really, why would I want the, the person running my country to not succeed? Right. Like, and, and it goes the same for anyone who, and I, I, I my dad is very right wing and, you know, and, and you see it, it's like, you're going to disparage someone be ultimately because you're taught to disparage them um but uh we digress we digress we could talk about this for hours um all good um no i i i really i i i i do find it fascinating that there's this like it, like you're 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 kind of exposed to this like next level of of like wealth right like like fuck you money let's call it wolf of wall street money like you know like it, it it's it's interesting that there's always there's always something else out there there's always something greater i think that's a good lesson to to kind of learn at some point um but but it is it is interesting to to just think about like the idea that the people you're around really impact you and you know all of a sudden you're not thinking to yourself all right like here's my income expectation like you're setting your in- income expectation a lot higher, um, potentially, right? Like you're, you're trying to keep in, in the average of all the people you're around. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, does that start to weigh on you and like give you pressure when you're like an, a 19, 20 year old and you're, you're having these realizations and all of a sudden you're like, like, like beforehand, you're thinking like, just like, I, like, I gotta make, I gotta try to make seven figures in my life to like, you know, like make it. And now all of a sudden you're, you're thinking to yourself, like, I got to figure out how to like, like structure passive investments. So like I got seven figure income from multiple streams, you know, like, like, is that, does that weigh on you? Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely made me hungry for sure. I, I think also I, a lot of, there were the people that were old money at GW and came from yeah. generational wealth. There was like the, the people whose money came from like their parents having C level positions and like going through a very like uh, regimented tried and true Harvard to end this MBA program life. But a lot of my friends and classmates also their parents came from 
I would say like the even first they were first generation Americans similar to I to, to I am also just parents who it was just watching and what they did like uh I think I really like what you're onto because I think you always have these I, I I would say had these ideas of to get to that wealth that you're talking about required like a lotto ticket when really I saw my friends parents who did it by hard work risks definitely and just like you know I have a, a friends over there whose whose parents were entrepreneurs you know and in different yeah. in, whether in aviation in 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 real estate you know and it just in in areas where it's like well if they could do it I see they could do it. I'm living you know it's it, you know it can be mine as well it can't be that that journey it, but hunger definitely is a was a big takeaway from it huh. I, I I think I think it's like well I guess what we're hitting at it it's it's really like the idea in the book thinking grow rich right like you have to first conceive the possibility and and once you see it you can start thinking it over and over again and when you when you when you think about it over and over again I, I guess maybe it, it actually becomes less daunting because all of a sudden you just believe it you know like you like you just start. It, it just it, it's not it's it's not unrealistic to you anymore it's like it's attainable yeah. that's a hundred percent huh that's that's pretty cool um so i i want to go back though to you know you said you, you you got linked up with david amirian how did that happen like were you guys family friends or you know you reached out to someone like like how did you connect with him and, and were you like were you yeah. looking for a job in construction let me start with so, that there was now I would say it was more so like, I want to say Hail Mary, but like a, it, it threw up a, a, a balloon right over there, kind of just like a weather balloon, kind of getting, seeing what the temperature was. Yeah. Uh, Dave is a one, has a younger, his youngest brother is, is my age. And I was friendly with him growing up through a mutual friend who was at GW with me, put us in touch and had a phone call turned into an interview that turned into a job. That's huh. how uh, that came about. Wow. But you, you wanted to go into construction? Like, you, like in your head, I mean, you, like you, you could do anything I, as a sunshine yeah, internship. So I, like, guess, I, I guess I did not. I, I really, you know, looking back on the GW experience and not to take a big step back, but just the whole idea about how we, all of us as 17, 18 year olds kind of go into the undergrad experience. Like, you know, who the fuck knows what, what we want to do, what we want to major in. Should I have chosen arts and sciences or the politics school or should I have chosen the business school? Like, what did I know then? I was really thinking about, it was more thinking about girls and going out, unfortunately, than I was about the exact uh, career path. So I think, you know, I, I putting myself in sophomore year shoes at that time, I probably had like visions of grandeur that I was going to be, you know, working at Goldman Sachs that summer only to, you know, realize like, oh, if you wanted to work at Goldman Sachs, you actually have to start doing that like seven months ago and, uh -huh. and like, interview for that guy and take that class. So it was, <laughs> I, I, I think, it, I think it, it was more so like this was an opportunity that was there. Reach out to this guy. This can be something. But it was, uh, it, it was a risk. It wasn't going into like a formal internship program and uh, yeah. by any means. Huh. Did that, did that feel weird for you? Like, like were you, were most of your friends in those formal internship programs and like, what, what, what was that like? It was a mixed bag. Uh, you know, I had, I had de definitely more, more people were doing something structured, 
and like we're all, you know a lot of people go work in the city that that summer same as I was a lot of we live in Great and I go do Long Island Railroad to the subway there and like a lot of people did that life but most people were going to some company's internship program not like yeah. you know buy your metro card save the receipt and make your own <laughs> uh, expense report and, nice and like, nice well listen it, 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 it's it's good to to kind of go off the oh, beaten I, path a little bit I would never I wouldn't change it I wouldn't change it for the world it was amazing the things uh-huh. I learned the people I met the the dominoes it, it set we kicked over and every yeah what it was great. Wow. Well, I, you know, I, I love, I love how it's like you, you had a, a good friend at GW who was friends with David's younger brother. Right. And like, and so he knew him and like, I, I love that, that story, right? Like it's, it's, it's so telling of the importance of relationships in life. Um, Almost so. And fast forward to my own practice now, so much of what I I have been able to achieve has been through the Great Neck GW connections, through me trying to set up friends when I can, and friends trying to set me up when they can, and just passing work and deals around, and just you know staying staying wow. active. And I mean that's you know spoiler alert to all uh, all the other listeners. I, I'm just saying <laughs> what, exactly what exactly what you and I do all the time. I mean it's. It's we always we know it's each other's wheelhouses of work wise. And if you're going to if you know somebody in need for something, you always want to bring it to a friend. I think, in my opinion, that's how I was raised. That's my school of thought. 100%. Someone who you know is going to do a good job, who's going to take care of that person and will you know, pay it forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think the, what you're highlighting, too, is like I think it's like you, you buy into this this overall system of 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 like karma, right? Like you, you treat people well and like you, 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 you act with integrity and you know, you, you show, you demonstrate that you are a trustworthy person with an ability to, to close at whatever you're doing. And people want to be able to refer you things, right? Just like you should want to be able to refer things to other people. And it's, it's very much, um, I, I like to think of it more in the sense of karma because I think it's, it's not about what any one person can give to, to any other person and back and forth, like a quid pro quo. Um, because I, I, think, I think that even on a, on a basic human level, it feels a lot better when you, when you can give something to someone with no like, direct intention of receiving anything at that time, right? Like, just like, like I wanna help you in whatever you're doing. Like, that that's so amazing and and ultimately it's like you know we're taught to give charity you know and obviously in in most religions preach this it's just a a general precept right but like when when i was discussing this yesterday actually it's like when you when you're able to help someone learn to fish or you're able to help someone get a job or or you know if, if you're like you're a lawyer right like literally an introduction for you is like you're getting a new job. Like you're literally getting a new job. Like you're getting a new boss, right? Like you, you have someone who's hiring you to do your job. Like you're a gig worker at the end of the day as a lawyer in that respect. And, and I, I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. I'm also a gig worker. I'm a mortgage broker, right? Like those, like being able to help someone do that is so tremendously powerful. And I, I, I feel great every time it happens. Like, 
like I, I helped my roommate get his job. I literally met my roommate's boss online at Mason Kaiser in, uh, on, on 36th and 5th. Like I just struck up a conversation with the dude and got to chatting and, and turns out he was starting a small hedge fund. And my roommate was, at the time was working at Kinecos, a uh, big short fund, uh, Jim Chanos, the guy, he, he called the, uh, the Enron scandal. Mm-hmm. Little, little, little nugget there. I'm a CPA. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just, I got to talking with him and, and I was like, oh, well, you know, you're going to be looking to hire sometime soon for accounting roles. And he's like, yeah, I think so. And six months later. So it, it, like that feeling is so amazing. Like, cause you know, he's, like I, I, he's one of my best friends. Like I've, I've lived with him for four and a half years now. And like, you know, we have a, a really deep relationship and to be able to like help someone that I care about that much find a job and like see success. It's really like, it, it, it's, it's, it's even powerful. more, yeah. it's even more magnified right now. I'll tell you so, oh, something happened today. Uh, I have a, a construction loan that I'm representing the borrower in the Bronx and the, the deal advanced to, to a point today where title needed to get ordered. And I reached out to a, a gentleman from this title company who I've, I've had, as a lawyer, I, you know, title, the laws have changed about how, what title companies can offer clients right now. But I still think the prevailing, in my opinion, prevailing mentality amongst lawyers is you sprinkle the, the wealth around a few title, different title firms, but you've got your guys who, you know, do solid work for you time and time and again, and you can always want to reach out to them. I did uh, this. I've, I've done two deals during uh, Corona time when all these clerks have been closed and, and it's been weird. One of them was with this uh, first nationwide title. And I reached out to my rep over there today to bring them this other deal. And they were telling me, you know, point blank, they're like that last deal we closed. They're like, that's one of the only deals that closed for my shop, you know, wow. and recently. And he's like, they you're, you helped me out huge. I can't believe you're doing this right now. And it's not what he's, this guy's trying to live right now and adapt the same way everyone is. It's not like he's got someone to throw me right now. It's just a great feeling knowing that I was able to pay it forward in this one role. And he's, he's delivered for me in the past. And I think that's, that's something that's just a, a good skill set of anybody in business, whatever level you are at a big firm, small firm, your own shop, broker, gig wow. worker is that yeah. yeah you have that you have to be you got you have to think about that level of karma that you have a network out there that you need to always look after your guys and just trust that you've got all these people out there that are always are looking after you too wow yeah i i, I really love that it's 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 true and you know i i think about it and like i feel like i i i used to I kind of went through a similar realization as, as you did. And like, in terms of like seeing like, like wealth in, in like the city, living in the city. Right. And like, I'm very involved in a lot of nonprofits and like, you know, I come from a very like, you know, middle, upper middle class background, like, but nothing crazy. Like I, I never really experienced or saw that level of wealth where I was from, like, like next level wealth. Right. And, and as I got, to live in the city longer and longer. And, and, and through a lot of these organizations, I, I started to see it more and more. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, like I, I was never really motivated by money. Like I just, 
I like to learn. I like, I want to feel motivated just in what I'm doing and passionate about like what I'm learning about, you know, and like feel like I'm actually productive and, and providing something in the world. Um, and at a certain point I said to myself, like, I want to be really successful because I want to be able to help all the people around me, you know, like the more successful I am, the, the, the better I can help my family and my close friends and, and their friends. Like, you know, it's like having that ability to pick up the phone and like get someone an internship, right? Like that's, that's huge, you know, like yeah. that's really huge. And, and you can, like any person can do that. Like every person has a capability to do that. And, and I just think it's, it's like if everyone thought like that and had that kind of growth mindset, the world would grow a little quicker <laughs> and, and, and grow in like, just like productivity, but like, just like the, the, just like the, the ability for, for people to thrive as a society. I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I rant a little there, but. Uh, no, but it's the truth. It's easy when, you know, we get, everyone gets caught in the rat race and you have your blinders on and it's very easy to lose sight of, of those bigger picture things. 100%. For sure. Um, well, well, let's, let's get back to your career. Cause I, I, I think it's, it's cool. So you, you, you went into this construction stuff for a few years, you work on these pretty dope projects and all of a sudden you graduate, but you're like, I don't want to continue doing this. Like what, what, like why would go into like, what, 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 what are so, you doing then? Yeah, so I mean, the, I worked on the the, the Satai that project uh, while I was in college, and then the the it was, you know I graduated in two thousand ten. It was uh, still the aftermath of yeah of, of the 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 Great Recession. So there was not you know it was like graduating to into with your skill set being I can help develop yeah. high end condos. <laughs> people look, people who had the basis of the that era, 2008 early 2000 they all crushed it when this you know next the boom time happened but at the time that wasn't anything to jump into so I worked with the family business it still kept me very much involved in a lot of development projects and working mm -hmm. with contractors and GCs but my my family business in 2012 when Hurricane Sandy happened I mentioned my father, it's IT and telecommunication. So we had space in two data centers in Manhattan. Oh boy. One of which was a block north of Battery Park, had a backup generator on the roof, had fuel tanks in the basement. Uh, hey. Not to get too detailed, right? The building was built for the 100 year flood line. In lower Manhattan before Sandy, the 100 year flood line was like 10 feet, 10 foot water surge. Sandy was like a 13 foot water surge. So the fuel pumps were flooded, couldn't turn oh, on the boy. data center. We got back on our feet. You know, it was amazing. And we, my dad's business ended up expanding. We did a lot of cool stuff, especially in the South Street Seaport area where, you know, Howard Hughes developers did a big, they're doing Pier 17. That project was only just getting started at the time. And there was a whole bunch of redevelopment in that area and office buildings that we brought fixed wireless broadband, basically like fiber speeds, but brought wirelessly. So opportunities, wow. you know, in everything, but. Huh. It was just a, it was an inflection moment. It was like, if I'm going to stay with my dad, I have to almost become that very, if, whenever you, if you do any job, right, you got to be the best at it. You got to know it cold. You can't be, you're a mortgage broker, right? You want to talk yeah. rates with me. You want to get very specific on the numbers. You are going to eat me alive. You're going to walk into any room. You're going to hit people with stats. That's going to be like, yeah, I live, breathe and eat this industry. Like, don't fuck with me. So if I was going to stay, if I was going to stay working with my dad, it was, and I knew what I was doing, but it was going to have to take a, a very serious move forward with like certain 
engineering and technical aspects that I just didn't want to do. Ended up in Brooklyn Law School less like a year after Hurricane Sandy. Wow. Right when I start Brooklyn Law School, at first I like I I get this killer internship at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, working on a a, a lot of amazing cases. But huh. David Mirian hits me up. He's like, "Look, I just started my own shop. You want it back in the development world?" And I was like, "Say no more." <laughs> I'm me up. And, uh, and I just I was doing law school, uh, not part time as a full time student, but working any opportunity, wow. like one four days a week, part-time, one full day a week uh, for Amirian. We built uh, three buildings in the city, did uh, consulting work on some others. Dude, that's sick. And yeah, once the projects for Amirian finished, uh, I had a, some, I had a skill set. I was a licensed attorney at that time and saw an opening and my business partner hmm. and I, Jack, we, we w jumped in and took a risk. And here I am now three years in on the, on our law firm where we also, I, I all that construction skill set that I picked up, my clients mm. still retain me for not as an attorney, as you mentioned, you know, in that opening as an owner's rep where I'm still adding value for clients on the construction end and not as a lawyer in certain uh, engagements. So mm. I get, I, I get to really do what I love, uh, try to be, get in you know, you gotta like, I, I practice what I preach. I know, Construction is a type of industry and, and real estate in general where the guy maybe with a, a less than a high school education knows the best because they've learned on the job and, they, and, and it's that type of that type of world. And I, I love that, you know, check your ego at the door and learn something new every day. Wow. That's, that's cool. I, I, I like, I like your story too, because I, I love how you, you combine these two very disparate skill sets like you're, you're probably one of the few people at least in our age range I'd say you know maybe there's m much more senior developers who could have had a legal background and but and also have got gained experience over the years in construction through development but like you know you you really worked in development and understand construction but you're also a lawyer um which which I just think it, it's it's so amazing to pair those two skills together and and uh I think I think kind of what you were saying before about being the best at something, you know, you 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 pick something where it's like your your niche. There aren't even that many people that do it, you know, like 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 you are going like you're making that niche, you know, like that's that's what's cool about it. Um, I, yeah, I really I really I, like that. I appreciate it. I mean, I am we we are, are we, like we were talking about you know previously we have our niches there's there's nuanced areas of being doing construction in, in the city of new york it's densely populated you need the cooperation of your neighbors you need to know the building department oh, yeah. and you know the, the issues that come up like there are, there are litigators in this in the in the construction law world who can eat me alive i'm always trying to get better and and see more and do more but I, I definitely, I love getting into the weeds on, on the jobs where I'm not a lawyer and I get to, to look at steel shop drawings and the, you know, to be at, I was, I was on site yesterday in the city. We were doing a big steel pick and it was fun to see and learn. Wow. That's, that's the value add that I keep trying to, you know, take from the experiences and apply to the, the next jobs in the future. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, I, I think, I think that, you, you know, for, for you, you definitely position yourself very well with your, your, your businesses, you know, having a, having a law, like a legal practice with a consulting firm, 
but long-term, you know, it, it's a kind of business where you can really grow out a development arm because, you know, I think what, what the biggest thing that I think you just said, which, which almost could go unnoticed, but like, you know, all the right people to call, right? Like, you know, who you need to get in touch with for what, and so much of a business and being able to put together any deal, real estate deal, buying a media company, buying a, you know, buying a, like a, a dry cleaner, right? Like, I don't know, any kind of deal where you're going to, you're going to bring together people to ultimately syndicate a deal and, and make something happen, right? Add a lot of value. You need to know all the right people to call and, a ground up development process, you know, it's a team effort from yeah. the various architects and engineers, the consultants, you know, the, and then the, the GC's team and the various subs. It really is. It, it, it takes a lot of inertia to get a project off the ground and a, a lot of, a lot of pushing to get it gone. And, you know, things go wrong all the time. There's, we've been asked to opine on more, more force majeure clauses than I ever thought I would need to in the past few months. Some, you know, we were heroes in, a, in, in some deals where we made our deals had those. We were, we were scrambling to find uh, ways to, to maneuver in situations where the language wasn't as strong for us. And, you know, it's a, as much as, you know, I think we've done a good job building our business, my, my firm as well with a lot of guys out there, we are, we live and die by the, by the industry in New York, the level sure. of construction activity, the level of of deal momentum. And this is something we were talking about on uh, last time we spoke, the guys, you know, like Eric Schmidt from Google, who said social distancing actually means more office space, more demand, not less demand. And I think if you were a good company with a good business plan before Corona, you still are a good company with a good business plan now. And we just need to see how things kind of shake out where the market's going to go. Like co-living, I think it's still like a, a real trend. I've got a lot of clients in that space. I've done, and I've done work as a as an owner's rep in in those buildouts. Rents are not coming down to a point where the co living model won't be economically relevant. Will we need to adapt where all my roommates and I kind of make take more hygiene approaches or all get tested or you know talk about our temperatures more often? Yeah, but those are things that are we're living through right now, and we're all gonna kind of yeah. figure out as they as they unfold. 100% agree with you on that. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm generally an optimist and don't get me wrong when I say like, I, I, I think I'll probably be working from home for the rest of the year personally, just the nature of my job. And, and, you know, it, I, but, but at the same time, the nature of my job is information. And, you know, it, that's the one area where I, I think for, for my business, it is potentially lacking uh, the full capacity of just like being in the same room with, all the guys I broker with and talking about deals all day. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's even more so to the point that the demand for office, I do not think in the long term will, will dramatically shift. Like people may say, like, I think, I think it's like, you know, people are looking at it from a very static standpoint of like, you know, Oh, I can work from home today. But if you're trying to grow a business, information's got to flow fast, real fast. And people need to trust each other and, you, you spread information and you build trust with your, your, your coworkers in an office, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's my fundamental belief. Um, I'm not saying flexible working isn't a thing and working from home isn't a thing. I'm totally bought into that. I've been, I, I used to work at PwC, did it a lot, but like, 
Um, I, I, I think that the people are, who are decreeing like end of New York and, you know, end of city living. It's just like, uh, yeah, I think, if, if, I think if anything, the, the only, yeah, the only benefit of them is giving the rest of us maybe an opportunity for a buy point on, you know, some on, on buying into the market. I uh, mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I think that's, that, that's true. Like if people want to leave, like, great. Like hopefully at the present yeah. price, I mean, I, I mean, I look, think, the, the state and the city are definitely not making it easier for anybody true. who's trying to play in the games to stay in New York. Maybe some silver lining out of all this could be that some of the, you know, draconian or just really, you know, really non-capitalist, not, not against the grain of these market forces laws that were passed yeah. that really, you know, that killed multifamily. Maybe there's got to be some tweaks to that to help bring the, the, the market back. But, we could hope. Yeah, we could hope. We, we could hope. That's I just I, I, yeah, I agree not with to you. bring it back to politics, but uh, you know, I think <laughs> I think in our industry in New York that's got it just, just where my mind is going. I'm, I'm sorry for sure. in advance. It's for, just that for sure. No, no, it's 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 okay. It, but it, I, I guess... it just sucks it just sucks for us in the game when we've got you you've got headwinds from coronavirus against you and you also gotta fight the you know you get and law also. Um, I, I hear you. I mean, well, first, let me, before I say something, I just want to preface for, for anyone who may be listening that's, that's not in, in real estate, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of addressing the recent changes in, in rent regulation passed last summer by, uh, by, the, by the state government of, of New York. Um, you know, I, I think in general, there's been a very left, uh, left shift shift within the political sphere um, and it's become very, in, in New York at least, and in the city uh, and the state level, and it's become very antagonistic to landlords. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're looking to potentially spite landlords and, and, you know, they've removed certain abilities to deregulate apartment buildings. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, take buildings out of rent stabilization, which, you know, many people think could be a bad thing, uh, but ultimately, they're removing the incentive for a businessman to go in and buy, or 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 woman, mind you, uh, business or businesswoman, to to buy a building and renovate it so that they could make money. But when they renovate it, they make the housing stock nicer, right? And like, and and that I think, you know, Ben, I think that's where where people miss out on 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 all of this is is everything that's been been shifting. Has, has not necessarily put a, an incentive to actually generate more quality housing for New Yorkers. Uh, yeah, I mean exactly. for so all New Yorkers. You got We need to increase. It's it's a, you know basic economics. The, the demands and forget the temporary changes in demand from you know around the pandemic, but demand for real estate in New York is higher than supply in in the core areas and than, than existing supply. And you yeah. have all these. You have all these forces that don't want to let you build with the density that you need to build in the areas you need to build that. Transit-rich yeah. neighborhoods that can support higher, taller buildings, more density, less yeah. parking requirements. But even even a, in very even other, I think even in other other neighborhoods, you, you know, not not call it not core neighborhoods, right? Like everyone in the city needs better housing. Uh, like on average as a whole, a lot can be done with their housing stock, um, and hopefully, hopefully you're going to build some of it. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious when you started your law firm, 
what was that process like? Because I, I also kind of started my business like as a mortgage broker, two and a half, uh, you know, coming up on three years this October. Like, what was that process like? Was it was it scary? Uh, you know, like what what was it like to get people to hire you? We very scary, and we sold ourselves off of a very specific niche. I kind of alluded to it before, but almost any ground up development project and most rent and a lot of renovations in New York, any sort of facade renovation work in New York will require the cooperations, the cooperation of your, the adjacent properties, right? So you'll huh. need to, if I want to install a scaffold in my neighbor's backyard to build my building or the building code says I need to protect my neighbor's roof or because of the, the, the height of the building I want to go, I need to excavate my building and, pour concrete underneath my neighbor's foundation to support my new foundation. That is all done by contract with getting grant, getting permission from your next door neighbor. That little niche of, you know, it's called adjacent property license agreement or access agreement. That little niche is very, uh, very active in New York because of the, the nature of how densely populated the buildings are and yeah. the building code, which requires protections of the neighbors. Huh. I did a ton of those access agreements when I worked at a Marion group with outside counsel. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing that we saw Jack, my business partner and I missing from the outside counsel we worked with is a real, real, real familiar knowledge with construction and how huh. constructability plays into those agreements. Because if I understand that what I need from uh, to execute that work and how to translate that into a contract, that, that is missing out there in the legal market. There's lawyers who can do it, don't get me wrong. But it was just seeing that that was something that we could cling to that gave us the confidence to go out there to the developers we knew who needed it. And we were also charging less than any other guy in the city. So mm. there was a core group of developers that we knew were doing new projects that needed those access agreements. And we, that's, that's what allowed us to get started. So it was, wow. And then that, that has, has evolved to other developers with that niche. And then also other matters that are tied to real estate and construction that we've been able to, to add value for our clients. Huh. That's, that's awesome. How, how long, like how long were you working with the outside council at Amirian group before you started to realize yourself? Like, Hey, like I could do this better than I they mean, can. I understand it, it better. It, it wasn't, I, it, 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 I mean, it, it wasn't until those, those deal, those like you, you signed the contract kind of when you're about to start your, your construction. But that contract, not to get really in the weeds over here, I mean, your listeners know real estate, right? But there's a drawing, especially in New York, called a site safety drawing that shows all of these protections I need for my neighbors, where I need scaffolding. And it wasn't until later in the project where we were like, wait, you're telling me the contract doesn't let me put a scaffolding on this setback? Because I need to physically stand there to place this, you know, this panel on our, our facade over there. Why weren't we thinking about this then? Huh. And no knock on that lawyer. They didn't, the lawyer was kind of just playing the hands they were dealt. That lawyer would have yeah. never asked the developer and said, Hey, Mr. Developer, your site safety plan is missing a detail on page four that says, how do you finish your facade on that exposure? Wow. So we, that's, that's, wow. that's the level of detail we try to, to get into. So you, so like you're working on these pro like, I guess you, you did three projects with them and on each project, you're just progressively like, this is real. Like, like there's a lot of real value here. And, and, like, yeah. you, you well, know, yeah. I, I think, I think lawyers, mortgage brokers, sales brokers, like a lot of service providers 
they're getting paid because they have experienced the problem that you are going to experience. And they're going to tell you ahead of time, this is what you're going to experience. This is how I've handled it in the past. And uh, this is how, at that time, this is how I would recommend you handle this. I couldn't even said it better. That's what I think the best way of looking at it is you're paying, you're, you're, you're paying for my service. Exactly. Because you're, you're paying for me done it before and not paying for the ramp ups and learning curve for the, from somebody else. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I guess when, when, when you think about it, it's like, you know, if you're helping do that for multi-million dollar project, like there's, there's money in that because there's, there's real value saved, right? Like, there, like if you could cut down on timeline because all of a sudden your contract process is more streamlined and you're ready to go yeah, quicker, exactly. there's extra on your money. Like there, that's, that's, that's huge. It's, it's a really We've also negotiated a lot of times you spend money to do your supportive excavation design in a way to preserve aspects of a huh. neighbor's building, whether it's some small retaining wall that they don't even need or a little shed in the back of their property somewhere in the boroughs. When, some, when the lawyer, you know, we've come around and got to that neighbor and said, hey, my guy is just going to, my, my developer client, he's just going to knock down your wall instead of him drilling soldier piles in that area. He's just going to do a soil berm and, and save on all the time and money and do it like that. But we'll just build you a new wall after. And the neighbor's like, oh, great, done. My client is saving six figures over there in, in time wow. and money, not needing to drill those piles and the time and not needing to do those small, the slow sequencing work and blasting through their project. That's, that's awesome. Whenever I, uh, I, I make my foray into development, which, you know, I, I, part of me hopes one day I'll, I'll, I'll be able to, to put together a development. Like, I think it'd be cool to build something, especially in New York city, like leave, leave your mark on a city like this. Uh, nothing, but be nothing better. Def than doing definitely my first call. Nothing better than doing construction in New York. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it does seem, it does seem pretty cool. It really does. Um, so, wow. I mean, you really had a, a great journey there. Um, I guess we could, we could, we could close out, maybe just share a little bit about your involvement with the Washington Institute, which I'll note, like we, we kind of, we, like, that's how we connected was, was through the Washington Institute. Like I think we'd met here or there, but like we became, like we became friendly at, at uh, their, their yeah. annual conference. So uh, I mentioned I worked, went to go work for my dad uh, right after graduating undergrad. I was working for my dad, was seeing a client of his, actually in, in one of the Trump buildings on, uh, I think on 68th Street between 2nd and 3rd. I was parked in the garage underneath, finished seeing the client, got into the car in the parking garage, mind you, like an idiot, I, I, I crash into another parked car in the parking garage. I get out of the car, I look, I was like, Typical Long Island douche, right? I leave my, give my business card to the garage attendant. And please tell this guy who's Audi I banged up to call me. I get a call a few days later from a really old gentleman. I'm that Audi owner. I was like, sir, please just send me the bill to fix your bumper. I'll take care of it right away. Send the guy the check. Again, fast forward a few weeks. This old gentleman calls me and said, nobody in all my years has ever handled a, a car accident like such a gentleman. The wow. Harvard Club is closed for renovations, but uh, please let me take you out to lunch at Del Frisco's. At this time, I'm, I'm I just moved to the city. I'm working for my dad. 
my all I'm about is going out in the East Village every night or going to like that, Rio, <laughs> that place Rio Grande and Murray Hill. Getting, like, <laughs> that was like my go-to happy hour scene to try to pound and margs. Yeah, exactly. Trying to get other some nice Long Island girls. So it was like, all right, a nice change from that. I go out to lunch with this guy. Like I mentioned, older gentleman, but it, we, I t- explained in my family background, my, like where my father and mother are from. And he's like, you and your father, he's Israeli, he's going to love this organization I'm a part of. Come to this breakfast briefing next week. Wow. So my, my dad and I go to this breakfast briefing. It's at the conference room at Alliance Bernstein on 6th Avenue. Uh, one of these trustees who's passed away now was a, like a CEO of Alliance. Their conference room overlooks all of Central Park. Wow. Michael Singh, who's uh, one of the managing directors, top scholars of the Institute, is giving this breakfast briefing. And just, he was uh, Condoleezza Rice's uh, right-hand man, national security, when she was running Secretary of State, like, on, and he was an NSC for Bush, and prominent Republican national security thinker. The dude just goes country by country, threat by threat, exam- like, explaining all of U.S. policy and the, the whole threat matrix and, like, what's going on in every country. My dad and I were hooked. I end up going to even more events than you know, my father does. And I work with the Institute now. I'm a trustee in my own right and doing this you know, long, young leaders program. Wow. And I love it. Um, obviously, the U.S. policy towards Israel has a special place in my heart. And I want, I'm an, an advocate of good U.S. relations with the state of Israel. But mm. I, like I said, I'm a radical Republic, uh, Republican, radical independent. The Washington Institute is completely nonpartisan no you know they yeah. didn't say anything in the last election no egg on their face where somebody can't work in the trump administration because they had some tweet you know bad mouthing mm-hmm. trump they they don't go any they never dive into any of the partisan partisanship stuff and i love that huh. uh, they have a lot of credibility as a result of that and like they well, put I out guess- a whole thing about oh, i'm sorry to interrupt, why the u.s should be have good relationship with israel and it was a whole study about why it's in the U.S.'s best interest from all these reasons, nothing to do about politics or religion. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess to give everyone a background, because I realized we, we didn't actually say what the Washington Institute, oh, and it, it's the Washington Institute for Near East <laughs> Policy, uh, and, and they are a nonpartisan think tank that focuses on Middle Eastern policy and, and really have experts, like the world-renowned experts, uh, from all different backgrounds and, and, and religions and, and races and countries and nationalities, ethnicities, uh, really like a, 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 an amazing hodgepodge of, of people. And I mean that in a great way, um, who, who put together thought leadership and help advise the executive branch of the United States on policy related to the Middle East. And it, it's I, like, I, I haven't been as exposed as you have, but I, I will say it is of the, the, it's the highest caliber in terms of, of research and, and, uh, and thought leadership in that space. And it's, it's cool. And it's, it's, it's cool to be in that room and hear someone like that talk and, and really get a, a glimpse into what's going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll leave you with another note on that. So my business partner, Jack Rukav in my firm, his, his, his family, they're Palestinian Catholic family and Jordanian huh. background. One of the scholars at the Washington Institute, Raith Al-Gamari, is Palestinian and recognized Jack's last name and because Jack's family owns a very famous candy shop in Ramallah. And it was wow. just like a crazy, funny, like Washington Institute moment. And me and Jack, Israeli, Palestinian backgrounds, doing it, business partners, boys. And if we could do it, you know. Wow. Wow. 
Wow. That, that is, that is awesome. Oh, okay. This is the last question then. How, how did you guys meet? And, 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 and then I'll let you go. How, how did you guys meet and become friends and business partners? He was a classmate of mine at Brooklyn Law. Just like you got your roommate a job. I was sitting in class, furiously banging away on my laptop. Jack was asking me, he's like, dude, the guy's not even talking. What notes are you writing? He's like, no, I got, I got, I got this job for a Miriam Group. I'm, 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 I'm working right now. And I got uh, Jack a job at a Miriam Group also. And we ended up, uh, once we both were, became attorneys, and I mentioned I uh, had wow. that finished those projects, we, we started our own shop. Dude, that, that's amazing. And like, I think like that relationship just like sums up everything we just talked about, like business being in the right sphere of influence, <laughs> helping people, your political bent, like, like that's, that's just emblematic of, of this whole conversation. That's really, that's a, that's a great way to end, man. Like this was, this was a very fun conversation for me. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. I really do. This My pleasure, awesome. brother. Um, well, yeah. so you, you, you are a rising Titan and, and I look forward to, to seeing you, you grow in the future.